Hello, and welcome to episode 101 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com. And for this episode, I've got a great guest to talk to, Larry Olmsted. He's the author of a new book called Fans, How Watching Sports Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Understanding. He's a New York Times bestselling author with multiple other books under his belt. Uh, you can check out more about the book at sportsfansbook.com and also follow him on Twitter at Travel Food Guy. So, Larry, welcome to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Glad we could make this happen. So the subtitle of your book makes the arguments pretty clear, and I, I want to delve deeper into those uh, soon. But let's start with something that that I, I really didn't expect to read about in your book. Um, you talk about the, the, the role of sports bars, and why are there so many sports bars all around the world? <laughs> you know, that's... Uh, it's a really interesting question, and you know, I make the point that sports fandom is different from other kinds of entertainment fandom, even though they're fans of a lot of different things. And you know, there are no Star Wars bars or Harry Potter bars or opera bars. You know, the only thing really comparable would be live music bars. Is the only you know kind of entertainment that has its own bar. And there's hundreds or thousands of sports bars all around the world. What I did not realize, I mean, and I've been to a lot of them because I travel a lot, and I often, if I'm by myself, it's a great place to go in, get something to eat, the games on. But uh, I didn't realize until I did this research that there was actually like a first modern sports bar in Southern California. And shortly after satellite TV arrived, a uh, former athlete came up with the idea of showing games uh, through satellite and having a lot of memorabilia. And that was the birth of the modern sports bar. And that's only like 40 years ago. Oh, that's crazy. And it, it surprised me to, to see you mention Kettle of Fish in New York. I used to hang out there. It's the, the Wisconsin bar in in New York City, and it definitely fits that bill. But it's 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 more than just that, and it's not just about the sports. That's I mean, and that's one of the, seems to be one of the themes of your book that like uniting around sports. It isn't just like we get together because we're Brewers fans or we're Red Sox fans or whatever. It's like that's kind of just an excuse, isn't it, to you know, have people to hang out with and, and chat with, even if it isn't just about the game. Well, I mean, the the all these you know the first line of my title is happier and. Uh, sports psychologists have identified a lot of mental health benefits that uh, sports fans enjoy at a higher rate than non-fans. But pretty much all of these things, like lower rates of depression, um, better social connectivity, more satisfaction with your life, come from the same thing, which is this feeling of community, of belonging. And, and that's in our nature, in our DNA, to we're tribal creatures. We want to be part of groups and societies. And sports fandom lends itself to that, whether, uh, you know, you're a displaced uh, Wisconsin Badger looking to go in New York to, to go join join your colleagues, or you're just, a, you know, maybe a more mainstream a Mets fan in New York, and, you know, half the people are, but, you know, you belong to this group that, you know, has a, a common uniform and common terminology and shares events, so um, it's it's a really it's a turnkey way to have a social uh, network which is really important these days because it's it, it, virtually everything you just said that used to be the description of what religious communities were and those have have ebbed in american society and, and around the world as well and i mean it, it, are, what are the differences then? Like, there's so many similarities that you've already already alluded to. Like, what are the differences between being part of a religious community and having this kind of turnkey community that comes from being a sports fan? 
Well, I mean, religion would be probably the closest thing, with the possible exception of being a, a deadhead. <laughs> and Grateful Dead fans are the most similar uh, group to sports fans in a lot of weird ways. But, um, but you know, uh, and, and I would argue that sports fandom has uh, possibly past religion in scope. Certainly, there are more sports fans than belong to any organized religion in the world. But they're similar, uh, except that, as you mentioned, um, you know, and, and one of the similarities is that that uh, you come about them the same way, which is not by choice. Uh, the number, the two big reasons why someone follows any given religion is where they were born and what their parents believed, and it's exactly the same for sports fans. Those, those are the two big drivers of the teams you support, with the exception of college, which is you know where you went, but otherwise it's where you're born and what your parents followed, and not just for teams, but for sports themselves. If you're parents were avid baseball fans it's unluckily you grew up a hockey fan randomly or vice versa but the, the as you mentioned religion has been ebbing and sports fandom has not and there are a few other you know kind of, of these important social structures in our society all of which have been in decline from bowling leagues to uh fraternal organizations like the elks club um workplace even even before the pandemic you know that telecommuting was was starting to erode the water cooler chatter that for many people is it was their social fabric so sports fandom is sort of the last still thriving social structure that unites us and it's universal it's in every country in the world is is there some i don't not a downside but is there some limitation there because like you mentioned fraternal organizations which is a great example of what used to be a lot more common in america i think of my grandfather who's very involved in a small town elks group and like he had this group of friends that was it wasn't always exactly the same but it was a weekly get together to you know go hang out with the local elks and it meant there was this local support structure and if i'm a brewers fan or i'm a roger federer fan like it doesn't give me the same type of support structure. It gives me the sense of belonging and community, but there's not the the local aspect. And it, I mean, is there a way that I'm missing that that sports fandom does take that place? Well, certainly, if you lived in Milwaukee, you would find a uh, you know a local group, uh, a local community of Brewers fans. You know, at, at every game, at every bar, if you want, you know wanted to go out, you know, it'd be harder when you're displaced geographically from your home team. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's certainly, it's not a cure-all, and, you know, it's a complicated issue, and it's not as simple as, like, oh, wow, sports fandom is the best thing, or sports fans are good, or sports fans are bad. I've just found that the uh, benefits of sports fandom are overwhelmingly positive, uh, which is a surprise to a lot of people, especially non-fans, who sort of dismiss it often as, as just frivolous or a waste of time. Yeah, when I mentioned this to my wife right before we, we jumped on this call, uh, her first thought went to, you know, the stereotypical fat guy in the stands drinking beer, going to the pub. And, and I mean, it sounds like there's a lot more to it than that, that that, that stereotype is, is not reflective of who fans are or what fans get out of sports, right? Right. I mean, um, and, and I did dive into that stereotype. I looked at basically every Hollywood and TV portrayal uh, of sports fans, and it's you know universally negative. At best, they're a fat drunk guy. At worst, they're psychotic. <laughs> so, um, and you know, almost half of fans are women. You know, and it also you know it depends on the sport. For example, um, you know, I know you, you're into tennis, so uh, 
you know, my wife and I went on a hiking trip uh, in the fall before the pandemic to Switzerland in the Alps. And on our way back in the airport, it was the same time that that um, kind of Ryder Cup format tennis tournament was taking place in Geneva. Yeah, Lever Cup. Um, yeah. And so when we got to the passport line in the airport, the U.S. passport line, everyone on that line was a tennis fan except for us. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and we're talking because it's a slow moving line. And, you know, about it, they, you know, they had just come. They were on their way home from 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 watching the games. And, you know, it was a totally diverse crowd with the exception that, you know, nobody was drunk and nobody was obese. Well, that might just be because they couldn't afford the beers in Switzerland, though. Um, so you mentioned deadheads this is something that didn't come up in the book what are the similarities between deadheads and sports fans well I would say that you know the 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 difference between uh, sports fans and fans of other kinds of entertainment is the community both you know in the live events but also the way that it extends outside of the live events um, where uh, the biggest would be the the ubiquitous clothing. So you know, if you're in in New York and you're you have your Yankees hat on and you're walking in the aisle of a supermarket and you see somebody in a Yankees T-shirt, uh, an NHL executive described this to me as the head nod. They call this in the sports industry. You look, you make eye contact, you kind of nod your head. You and I are connected, and it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, race, age, educational background, income, for a moment you share this being a Yankees fan. And you could have the same thing if you were, say, you know, both wearing Metallica t-shirts, but that's just statistically a lot less likely than sports gear. And among other forms of entertainment, it's dead fans who are have a, a, the, the most widespread, instantly recognizable kind of uniform. And also... This is something that didn't really occur to me until I had finished the book, but sports fans are big fans of bumper stickers, and uh, my, I live in New England. My next-door neighbor has Patriots and Red Sox stickers on his pickup truck, but you never see like a Star Wars bumper sticker or a Harry Potter bumper sticker, and you don't see bumper stickers for most music, but you see tons of dead stickers. I've seen hundreds of them. I've never seen a Beatles sticker, even though the Beatles are a much bigger band on a car. So... You know, these are all things that reinforce your belonging to the community outside of the events, even when you're not going to a show or go. And and the dead have even like perfected um, the concert version of tailgating. You know, people go hours before the show. Well, when you obviously can't go anymore (laughs) to (laughs) that show. But, um, you know, so I just, you know, it's 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 not uh you know a rocket science breakthrough it just occurred to me because i have been to dead shows and i have been to sporting events that you know there were sort of the scale and um community and feel of 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 the groups uh also the unscripted nature that's another big thing right that's what sets sports a, a, apart from other kinds of entertainment is that you don't know what's going to happen uh, whereas you know, I personally am a Star Wars fan, but I didn't need eight sequels and 40 years to know that the good guys were going to win at the end. Um, and, you know, when you go into most movies, whether it's James Bond or Mission Impossible or you watch CSI, you know they're going to catch the bad guy or save the world. But with sports, you don't know. And that's also why you kind of have to watch it in real time. And to take the music analogy, you know, there's a lot of bands that play basically the same set every night. Uh, which the dead never did. They played more concerts than 
any other band in history, and each one was unique, like a sporting event. Like I like Guns N' Roses, but I know, and I've been to a couple of concerts. If I go, they're going to play "Welcome to the Jungle" every time. But you, there's no song you can go to a Dead show and know they're going to play. Well, go to some sporting events and they'll play "Welcome to the Jungle" too. Uh, <laughs> exactly, I love that. <laughs> uh, you mentioned bumper stickers, and that's a good segue to the next thing I wanted to ask you. Is, is, is I, I love that that analogy is fantastic between uh, sporting events and and Grateful Dead concerts. Um, but an, another similar sort of religion replacement or community replacement thing is politics. And people do have political bumper stickers, signs, they have buttons. I guess there's, there's some clothing, but it's more just, just buttons. But there is the community aspect to it. And also, since you're talking about the unpredictability of it, there's definitely unpredictability when you're following elections. Like, it, it, it seems like the, this comes up a few times in the book. It seems like you it's better for people to become sports fans than to become political junkies. Um, why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I describe sports fandom as a universal language and talk about, you know, how it's a unifier and brings people together, uh, brings very, very diverse people together. You know, every t- sports team base uh, spans uh, a wide range of uh, race, age, income in a way that political affiliation does not. But the biggest thing to me is is that the rivalries in sports, while they can be intense locally, especially you know like UNC Duke or something like that, they're part of the fun. And you know we talk about sports bars, right? So I've traveled a lot. I'll go into a bar in the airport, sit down. There's a game on. Maybe I'm I'm a Bills fan, and I sit down next to a Patriots fan, and we can you know kind of agree to disagree whose quarterback is better, whose team is better. We might argue about it, but we're not. We don't hate each other. Uh, and that's I think the difference in between sports and politics is, is there's very little common ground. It's divisive and you're never going to, you know, agree or convince anyone of anything. And another possible parallel I was thinking, there used to be this, this ad on the New York City subway that I think it was for the New York Times, but I'm not 100% sure about that. And it, it pictured this guy in a suit with his morning coffee reading the paper. And it said that he followed business like other people followed sports, which always seemed to me a little bit idiotic, partly because it sounds so boring. But like you can kind of see the parallel, like Coke versus Pepsi, and as, as the corporate structures is similar to Yankees versus Red Sox. But I mean, is there any possibility that like affiliation with a brand or affiliation with a business could serve some of the same purposes as affiliation with a sports team? I mean, you know, maybe something like Apple, where you can go to the Apple Store twenty four hours a day and be surrounded by people, but. I would say one of the big differences in sports and, you know, it's, it's a little different between team sport, team sports and individual sports like tennis and golf. But, you know, the biggest, the most watched sports in the country are team sports. And, you know, Jerry Seinfeld made this you know famous skit about we're really just rooting for laundry because the players come and go in the uniforms. And there's some truth to that, because if you're, you know, you're born in the Bronx you're probably going to be a Yankees fan. And the Yankees are presumably going to exist 100 years from now, while all of the players on the Yankees will have come and gone several times in, in there. And um, But you're, pro- you're very, very unlikely to suddenly stop becoming a Yankees fan. I mean, it happens, but it's like in religion, similar to basically, you know, uh, tossing your religion or converting, which, you know, is very rare. So, but with politics... There's a lot of people say who change 
parties, which would be the same, you know, the equivalent of the team affiliation in every election or back and forth. You know, there's all these swing voters who, you know, one, one election vote Democrat, one vote Republican. So that's, you know, very different from sports. And I think, you know, it's more with the products too, it changes, you know, there's, um, you know, people were McDonald's fans before there was Burger King, but some of them obviously switched. And then Wendy's came along and some of them switched. <laughs> you know, every time, you know, a new product comes out, you know, I used to have an iPhone. Now I go to Samsung Galaxy and I think I have good reasons for that. But, you know, it's easier than it would be to switch from being a Bills fan to a Patriots fan. Yet yeah, certainly a different kind of affiliation. And I'm glad you mentioned the difference between following team sports and following individual sports, because it, it sounds like a lot of your perspectives are coming from from being a football fan, the big four American team sports. And uh, a lot of my listeners are going to be tennis fans, obviously. That's more star-driven or individual-driven. And it seems like a lot of the benefits you're talking about are around team sports. So how much of these benefits of being a sports fan can you get following an individual sport like tennis or golf? Well, I mean, you can still get a lot, but the reason it's not that I think, you know, that you get more from team sports. The, the, one of the problems is that the way uh, psychologists who study this topic that, you know, they've developed this thing called the sports spectator uh, identification scale. So when they get, when they survey consumers or people, they, um, you know, they don't necessarily even, the person doesn't even know they're being interviewed about sports. A lot of times these surveys are very far reaching because they're trying to, you know, get y your opinions without, skewing you. And, and so there's questions that sort of set up how avid a sports fan you are and then link to other things. And those questions revolve around team affiliation just because that's the way the scale was direct was was created originally. So so sports psychologists study fans of team sports more than they study fans of individual sports, um, which is why a lot of the data comes from that. But I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of crossover, and also the average sports fan follows between five and six different sports. So, you know, uh, mo a lot of people follow tennis, but also follow baseball, or follow golf, but also follow football, or some combination thereof. The difference would be, even between golf and tennis, I think you have less of the kind of ubiquitous uniform. You know, with golf, you, you see a lot of PGA logos, plus every golf resort and golf course in the world sells its own logo shirts. And even though, you know, one might say Augusta and one might say Pebble Beach, it's kind of similar. You wear one, hey, you're, you play golf, you're a golf fan. It's a little less, I mean, you know, because the, the tennis attire passes more for normal, nice clothing. <laughs> so it doesn't necessarily mark you as a, as, a, as a member of a community unless it's, you know, like a, a Wilson shirt or something. So, um, but I do think that, you know, in terms of the spectator experience, certainly I've been to the, you know, U.S. Open in, in Queens. And, you know, I would say, you know, the people are enjoying a sense of community and camaraderie and a good time when they're there. It's interesting. You're right that there isn't the same sort of uniform for tennis. I mean, there are Roger Federer hats and certain clothing is, is obviously tennis clothing. And this one guy I used to play tennis with uh, was was a ball boy at the U.S. Open. And he had the full uniform from being a ball boy. And he would wear that out to play tennis on weekends. And boy, if you want to broadcast an affiliation, there's no better way to do it than wearing your full ball boy uniform every weekend to play some casual <laughs> tennis. Um, so... 
thinking about being a tennis fan, you're often thinking about th- organizing your fandom around a star or a few stars. And one of the most surprising and interesting chapters in your book for me was the one about American Ninja Warrior, the TV show. And this is an individual sport, but you don't really follow fans or dynasties or anything that, like that. You're almost following the the sport. Like, I mean, it, it's almost like a game show, right? That like it, it, it's structured very differently, but it sounds like you're able to follow it in a similar way to the way you follow other sports. Yeah, I mean, you get, you know, they've done, it was created out of whole cloth, which is one of the reasons it interests me, because everything that it's produced that we can study from changes in fitness behavior to changes in prize money, you know, has happened in a very short time and had no predecessor. So it's sort of a living laboratory for my purposes. But but they have done a good job of really promoting the personalities and the stars all have nicknames and they all have, you know, like something specific to their background, right? So the guy who's probably the winningest guy ever on American Ninja Warrior won this season is uh, a pastor or preacher of some kind. And so, you know, that's sort of his affiliate, you know, you know, oh, that's the pastor guy, you know, that's the motivational speaker guy, that's the fireman guy. So they've done a good, a good job of, of sort of creating characters to follow. But to me, it's, it's, it's probably most similar to the Olympics in that it's, it's a display of sort of raw athleticism and fitness at an individual level in a different way than we see in, in team sports. It's more like, you know, every four years I'll watch the gymnastics, but I'm not, I don't ever watch it when it's not the Olympics, um, you know, and I'm impressed or speed skating or whatever it is. So it's more like that where it's impressive because it's impressive. Yeah, and, and you hinted at one thing that's baked right in your title, that being a sports fan makes you healthier, and it sounds like American Ninja Warrior has launched this whole lifestyle for some people, where there are ninja gyms that, I mean, this is completely unknown to me, but I, I, I believe you that they're out there. And in general, you mentioned these studies that, that point to the correlation between being a fan and participating in sports, and I'm, I'm curious, you... You say that there's some evidence that there, there's a causal relationship, that being a fan causes the participation, but it's, it's a little muddy. That it, I mean, people who participate in sports are more likely to be fans and vice versa. So how, how sure do you think we can be of this evidence that being a sports fan makes it more likely that you participate in sports? Yeah, and it is very muddy. Um, so, you know, what we know is that sports fans are more active on average than non-sports fans. The question is why? And part of it is definitely like a chicken and egg thing. Some people are sports fans because they already played the sport. And I think in tennis in particular, like I, you know, I know some football fans who played high school football, but most, you know, I never played tackle football. I'm a football fan. I think that's pretty common. And I'm never going to like watch an NFL game and say, Hey, I'm going to go out and buy a helmet and go out and get hit. Um, you know, (laughs) there's no, no chance of that happening. Um, Tennis, I think a lot of people who are fans either play or played. Um, but so, you know, are they fans of tennis because they like playing tennis or, you know, vice versa? And that's really hard to figure out. And that's why I looked at some of these things uh, like American Ninja Warrior, where the sport didn't exist. It came on TV. People saw it. And just in a few years, there's hundreds of these specific ninja gyms around the country with people training. And clearly to me, 
those people wouldn't be doing it had they not seen it on TV and been motivated. In fact, they, you know, I read interviews with, you know, these parents, like my kids watched it and they wanted to go to the gym and then I went and I never worked out and now I love it. So it's also a little bit more multi-generational. But that's, you know, that's not the only example and there are others. But to me, it's not... Um, you know, we live in a society that has a lot of health issues, public health issues, obesity and diabetes. And to me, anything that gets some percentage of the population fitter and more active is good. So, you know, the, the mental health benefits are much clearer, but there is, you know, there's some health benefit here. And, and the most obvious example is the Olympics. Um, every time the Olympics come around, and for most of my life, that was every four years. Now it's every two years. Uh, there's a spike in gym memberships following the Olympics. Part of that is like a New Year's resolution thing. You know, people see it, they're inspired, they're, I'm gonna get in shape, and some of them drop off, um, some of them don't. But the, the thing about the Olympics is that you get an audience that includes people who don't watch a lot of sports, who it, maybe it's the only sporting event they watch the entire year because it's a spectacle. And as I said, you get more of these sports that you don't normally watch that are really, you know, displays of, of being fit like track and field and rowing and but it's also in a way more relatable because you know they have the dream team goes to the olympics but i know i'm never going to be able to dunk uh like lebron or like anyone i can never be able to dunk at all but i can you know go to the gym and run on a treadmill or row or ride a stationary bike which is you know like emulating what the people in the olympics are doing and that's why the olympic participation effect is a little bit unusual in that it's not usually motivating people to go out and try a sport it's motivating people to go out and try to be fit and though there are exceptions when they have new sports in the olympics there's almost always a surge in participation in those sports afterwards because they're things people have never seen on tv before this even happened with beach volleyball uh, but this year the two new sports at the Olympics are going to be rock climbing and surfing. And they're both sports that are like high adrenaline, exciting, fun to watch on TV that most people have never seen. So, you know, surfing is more accessible than you might think because any beach resort in the world, you can go take like a two hour learn to surf lesson, whether you're in Florida or the Caribbean or Bahamas, Mexico, Hawaii. So, you know, I think more people will do that, but the climbing that they're doing is uh, gym-based indoor wall climbing, which you can do in any major city in the world. You can do in the winter. You can do when it's raining. So I think, you know, a lot, and you know, people already belong to gyms that have this, but maybe they've never tried it. They're going to see it in the Olympics, and they're going to try it. And that's happened historically with cycling, triathlon, all uh, cross-country skiing after the women won for the first time just in Korea just two years ago, big spike in participation. So I think that, you know, spectator sports definitely has the potential to drive people off the couch. Yeah, the, the, the story that I love, it comes up every Winter Olympics now is after, after the curling happens, there's always newspaper articles about how, you know, these, these curling rinks uh, are suddenly popular again for the first time in four years. And if the Olympics can make curling popular, then man, they've got a lot of power for good. Um, you mentioned football as an example of a sport that a lot of people watch that isn't so practical to play, especially if you think in terms of tackle football. And I think you could say the same thing uh, about, about ice hockey. Um, but something like baseball or basketball, you can, you can go out and play in your yard. Um, I mean, obviously tennis and golf are easy. Do you think that the, the leagues or the teams can or should do more to encourage their fans to, um, to get out there and emulate the stars they're watching on TV? You know, I think that they 
should do more to encourage activity and fitness. And, you know, some of them do. I, I, you know, I know a lot of teams will sponsor things like five or 10K fun runs, you know, and a lot of professional sports teams do a lot of, of charitable tied things. But yeah, I don't really, I don't see it. I mean, they, they do, um, there is this thing, you know, USA football that's based in Indianapolis that is uh, at the grassroots to encourage more uh, like flag and high school, and it's funded in part by the NFL, but it's more at developing fans than it is at changing them. I don't think there's any active uh, effort or expectation to get people who are, you know, 40 plus years old out playing some form of football um, the way that there is in golf. Um, but, you know, so what, what resources they've aimed at it is, is developmentally in terms of getting, exposing young kids to the sport. And part of that is also the fact that a lot of parents won't let their kids play tackle football anymore, who would have 20 years ago. Um, you know, I think a lot of the other youth sports are, you know, whether it's soccer or baseball are not, the danger isn't as big an issue. Yeah, and, and thinking in terms of of your argument that basically being a sports fan is good for you, it 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 puts a different spin on sporting leagues trying to attract fans because normally they're thinking of attracting fans in terms of advertising dollars or ticket revenue or apparel revenue, and they're often targeting very specific demographics to doing that. But there seems to be a broader societal good, and I wonder, do you think that there's room for leagues to do a better job of reaching out to? let's say the entire public, for instance, I, I spoke to a, a guest, Julie DeCaro last week, who, um, who talked a lot about how, how sports target the men 18 to 35 and, and often ignore the rest. And the rest of the population could benefit just as much or more from being a sports fan as the rest, but the leagues don't always target them for their own reasons. I mean, do you think there's room for them to do a better job of that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, again, it varies from sport. I would say, you know, few sports have done as much to, to change the participation as women's soccer. Um, you know, got hundreds of thousands of uh, younger women and adolescents playing playing soccer who just didn't before, uh, you know, transformative in the way in school sports. But, um, but you know, the, 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 big, the big four – you know, certainly, you know, part of it is the advertising has also always really skewed male, and so have the institutions, the the coaching staffs, the the front offices. So that's changing. You know, we're seeing suddenly sort of, you know, it it, it hasn't reached the the equality level it should for sure. But you know, a wave of women coaches entering the major sports, and that's only going to get bigger, and that's going to, I think, you know, broaden broaden the appeal and the fan base. Yeah, I mean, I, I I certainly hope it happens. It's been, as you point out, it's been getting there very, very slowly. I'm I'm wondering since since a lot of the 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 benefit of sports, at least in terms of of physical health, comes from following role models, thinking you know, watching baseball on TV as a kid and wanting to play baseball. It it seems like in this generation now, more than twenty or thirty years ago fans are way more aware of analytics, about front office roles, about the stuff that goes on behind the scenes. And you have people who in high school want to be a general manager or want to be a, a sabermetrics guy or something. And you, I don't think you ever would have heard that 20 or 30 years ago. And in general, I think that's, I would have thought that's a good thing that there's, there's more ways to be involved in sports. But I wonder, you know, if, if, if geeky, skinny, you know, 15 year old me was thinking in those terms, 25 years ago. I mean, 
would I have been less likely to follow my role models and try to play sports? I mean, do you think there's any negatives in in these different ways that people can pursue sports other than you know, actually physically getting involved and going outside and doing it? Uh, no, I really don't. And I think, you know, I think if anything, it's improved the sort of intellectual side of the sports fan. And, you know, I grew up in Queens and uh, lived near, relatively near Shea Stadium. So the first sports, my first sports affiliation was my dad taking my brother and I to Mets games. And he taught us to score, you know, manually in the program. Uh, you know, I don't know if people still do that or you know what that is, but, you know, but, um, you know, to score a baseball game with these arcane symbols that they would do, which is sort of its own code. And, you know, it was somewhat of an intellectual exercise. And I don't know, you know, both my brother and I did really well in math. And I don't know if that had anything to do with scoring baseball, but it certainly, you know, didn't hurt us to be using our brains while watching the game. And then we would play Stratomatic, which was like the first um, sort of board game baseball simulation based on actual player performance, a sort of precursor to fantasy sport. And uh, and now all of that has evolved so much. I mean, the difference being that when I scored or, you know, followed baseball, you only need to remember a few things like ERA and RBI and the sabermetrics and moneyball things didn't exist. With that, it becomes a little bit more complicated to be a knowledgeable sports fan, which makes it, you know, that much more cerebral. And the growth of fantasy sports concurrently, which is, is, is boomed enormously. I mean, there's uh, – when I – Last numbers I had when I wrote the book, close to 60 million people in the U.S. and Canada playing fantasy sports regularly, and there's less than 200 million sports fans. So that's like, you know, one out of three. That's a lot. And they have to follow the stats and stay on top of the information. So a few things happen. One is um, we know that regular exercise of our brains, whether it's you know doing Sudoku or crossword puzzles or reading every day, is good for us, especially as we age and prevents cognitive decline and I think sports have that same role and you talk to a lot of older people who remember you know the lineup from the World Series their team won 25 years ago but also the fantasy aspect of it makes uh, a whole nother layer of social connectivity and especially we saw that in the pandemic when sports came back people still had their fantasy leagues and fantasy leagues are typically not an in-person thing and they're often organized around an affiliation so i know a lot like people who have one league for college friends one league for fellow for co-workers from their last job i know a woman who you know had a lot uh, a lot of medical difficulties who plays in a fantasy league with the people at the rehab place she used to go to you know for physical um you know whatever you know to physical rehabilitation so you know whatever the affiliation is it's it's a it's a created new ways for people to stay in touch it's almost like a second level of social media separate from you know facebook and twitter I'm glad you mentioned going to games as a kid because I, I mean I, I had similar memories learning to keep score and this is this is long enough ago that it was all very analog there were no cell phones in sight certainly no smartphones in sight and I'm wondering do you think that the same experience is available nowadays to to kids or families with kids when everybody has a smartphone and the, the experience is just I mean, it, it's it's more digital less analog how has that changed? Well, it's definitely changing the way the people consume sport, um, just like the way they consume movies. I mean, I, I could never watch like a movie or TV show on my phone, but lots of people do, um, and presumably watch sports on their phone too. Uh, but I, the, the bigger problem is, well, twofold. One is that 
sports are losing the younger end of the audience and it's it's a problem it's been documented it's something they're trying to address and i don't know if you saw this even you know the nfl did a deal with nickelodeon this year where they were having these special like slime tv versions of games um to try to like attract kids and part you know uh Part of it is a technological thing. They're competing with more other diversions, more video games, more different things. But um, but at the same time, to me, the big problem is that sports have become really expensive to go to in person. Um, you know, when my dad would take us to the Mets game, we had, you know they were general admission seats and they were like four dollars. You know, certainly adjusted for inflation, that would be more now. But you don't have. I would go, my wife is from the Bronx, we would go to Yankees games at the old Yankee stadiums, and again, sit in like the bleacher seats, and now all the new stadiums have gotten so expensive that I think it's prohibitive for a lot of people to just make sports a family outing um, on a regular basis, and, you know, I know people who make, you know, some pretty big sacrifices to have season tickets to, you know, like the Giants, um, or the Yankees, but... So I think that's that's unfortunate that sports have priced out a lot of regular people from the live events. But the reality is most sports fans watch most sports on TV anyway. Um, so maybe that's not a big deal. The, the, the flip side of that being that if there's, you know, I, I've interviewed hundreds of sports fans in different cultures around the world over the past few years. And the one commonality everybody seems to have is that multi-generational memory. Oh, I watched my first game. I had my first beer with my granddad watching, you know, the Broncos or whatever it is. It's, it's resounds through kind of every, you know, I have one or two sports fans who came to it later in life, but for the most part, it, it's, it's connected is you mentioned how expensive the the big four sports have gotten and one alternative to that for at least some people is minor league sports especially minor league baseball i mean do you think you get the same i i mean you know health happiness sort of bang for the buck out of minor league sports as you do from the big four yeah i mean you maybe don't the difference being that most people probably don't follow the team as closely, but in some markets they do. If you lived in Buffalo, you know, the, the binder league team is a really big deal, and it is in, in, certainly in cities that don't have a, a major league team it is. But, again, it, it becomes a little bit, you know, like if you live in New York City, it's a little bit harder. Um, you know, there are places where, where I live, there is no there is no minor league team to go follow. So I think it is a good value. It's easy access. Um but I, you know, there are certainly are alternatives, and in large parts of the country, you know, uh, the big thing, you know, you see this uh, uh, Friday Night Lights, right? High school, high school sports are huge in a big swaths of the country, and they're, you know, essentially free. And um, you know, college sports can be really inexpensive um, as well. And you know, for me personally. Um, I've been to a lot of, you know, I've been to a lot of big time sporting events and the NFL being my preferred sort of number one sport, the Super Bowl should be my sort of bucket list event. And I've been to the Super Bowl and it was fun and I would go again, but it's not that great because a lot of people who go aren't fans and you're not necessarily interested in the teams that are playing. What really surprised me in all of my explorations was that the most fun the single most enjoyable sporting event that I have ever been to was the Kentucky Derby. 
And I did not really expect that. I don't follow horse racing. I don't know anything about horse racing. But one of the joys of it is you, anyone can go. You can always go, and there's cheap infield tickets, and they never sell out. And it's the same for, like, the Indy 500, right? It's the largest, most attended sporting event in the world. But you could go very easily. You don't have to, you know, mortgage your house like you do to go to the Super Bowl. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I wanted to ask you since you're a travel writer, you're a food writer. This isn't you're not primarily a sports guy, and I'm wondering in in your travels, which I'm assuming are pretty frequent when there's not a pandemic going on, um, is do you seek out sports spectating opportunities around the world? You know, I have not really um, before. I think I will now because I know more about it, but. There's, there are a couple of, of exceptions to that. One would be, you know, particular venues. Like, I'd really like to go to a Cubs game at Wrigley because of the state, you know, same reason I've been to games at Fenway Park. You know, the stadium itself attracts me. Um, so things like that. And then I do like, you know, spectacles and travel-worthy events. And the difference being that something like the Kentucky Derby or I've been to the Melbourne Cup, which is, you know, the Australian version, which is even bigger. It's the only sporting event I know of in the world that's literally a holiday. You know, we, the Super Bowl is played on a Sunday and nobody really does anything else, but, you know, Melbourne Cup, it's Cup Day. You don't go to work. You watch the Melbourne Cup. And, um, and that's the kind, those are the kind of events, the Derby, the Indy, uh, the Monaco F1 race that people travel to even if they have no interest in the sport. So that's sort of my, my interest in them. And, you know, there's a, there's a few more, you know, I've, I've been to South Africa a few times and I really like it, but now, you know, that I know more about the history of rugby, I'd love to go to a rugby game there. So, um, I'd like to go to a baseball game in Japan. There's a lot of those, you know, kind of, uh, more experiential things than, uh, then, you know, a particular, like to me, I'd rather do that than go to the World Series or something like that, that for most people would be more of a bucket list. I like the idea of combining travel. And I have done, you know, I went to a soccer game. I'm not a soccer fan, but I've gone in Europe because it's the thing to do. Yeah, I would love to go to a baseball game in Japan. I was in Japan and I blew my opportunity with uh, insufficient preparation and it still still kills me. I've got to, got to go back to, get, to to go to see some Japanese baseball. Um, and since you're, a, since you're a food writer as well and you think about food, when you go to games, like let's just say you're going to an NFL game, do you, are, are you strategic about the food? Like do you try to make the best of the, of the concessions or do you eat before? How do you, how do you handle your, your game day eating plan? <laughs> um, I am. I do give it a lot of thought. And I, you know, I wouldn't try to eat before, you know, because to me, even if you can do better, the, you know, the, the on-site food is sort of part of the experience. But it depends. You know, there's certain there. I'm a big fan of a sense of place and locality. So, you know, if I go to Buffalo, I want to have Buffalo wings. And that's true, you know, whether I'm at the game or not. And fortunately, you know, you can you can do that at all of their venues, <laughs> sporting venues, as well as pretty much any place in Buffalo. But there are cities, you know, that don't have a specialty. And then, you know, it just becomes, you know, what's the best of the stadium food? And that is, I would say, the one thing that the corporatization that, you know, while it's made it more expensive, it certainly made the food much better. And both like Yankee and Mets stadium have much better. It's almost too many options. You can't decide what to get much better than they used to be. But there's, um, you know, there's certain sporting events that have particular associations like the masters, which is coming up, uh, 
you know, it has its own iconic food, this the cheese, pimento cheese sandwich. It's the oddest thing to me. And there's been a lot written about how this has come to be, but, you know, it has nothing to do with golf, you know, but, uh, but, you know, that's the thing. If you go to the masters, you have a pimento cheese sandwich and, um, you know, if you go to a Green Bay Packers game, you're going to have a bratwurst. And I think that's great. I love that that sense of, of place and geography when you travel, whether you go to a game or not, but it's even nicer when they come together. Yeah, that sound, it sounds great. And with, with Wimbledon, people... With strawberries tennis, people, and champagne, right? Exactly. The strawberries and cream and the, the pims. Yeah. And yeah, it's part, it's part of the experience. Um, I say that as a person who went to watch tennis and didn't buy any strawberries and cream, but I'm, I'm weird <laughs> that way. I don't recommend following my advice for food. Uh, okay, I've got one last question for you, Larry. Uh, you've, you've said in the book and in our conversation that sports is often multi-generational. People get this stuff almost in the genes that you become a baseball fan because your parents were a baseball fan or a Yankees fan because someone influential was a, was a Yankees fan. Let's say someone is listening to this, you know, they like their tennis, but they're thinking, I, I buy this argument. I think my life would be better if I'm a sports fan, but I don't even know where to sport, where to start. There's no big, big teams in my hometown. How would you recommend someone like that become a sports fan and get the benefits that you're talking about? Well, you know, I don't actually recommend it because I'm not <laughs> trying to convert people uh, to being sports fans. And part of it is, you know, the reason why it makes us happy is because we enjoy it. it it's not like a workout. If somebody makes you become a sports fan and you don't enjoy it, then you're not going to get that joy of being in that community. Um, so, you know, it, it's important that you actually enjoy watching the sport, but the the thing is that there's so many sports that I feel like, you know, there's something for everyone, whether it's American Ninja Warrior or, you know, I don't really get NASCAR, but a lot of people do. Um, so, you know, there's so such a variety of kinds of sports, you know, maybe your thing is, is, is rodeo, but um, it's just hard for me to imagine somebody who can't find a sport that they like to watch. But that being said, you, you know, one of the one of the things is I think if you're a sports fan, and you read my book, you're going to find a lot to like, and you're going to find a lot that you recognize and say, oh, yeah, I had that experience, or my grandfather, whatever. But what I want is for non-sports fans to read the book and realize how the world is made a better place by the fact that there are sports fans, things like the civil rights movement and post-traumatic healing of society and the global peace process that they wouldn't normally connect to sports and then come away and say, you know, my life is better. I live in a better world via sports fandom, whether I watch or not. And then you don't have to watch uh, a Giants game to get those benefits. Larry, thank you so much for joining me. This has been really interesting and informative. Oh, I was, it was my pleasure. And uh, I, maybe I learned a little bit about tennis at the same time. Well, that's always a plus for anyone. Um, I've been talking with Larry Olmsted. He's the author of the new book, Fans, How Watching Sports Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Understanding. It is out now and available wherever books are sold. You can read more about it at sportsfansbook.com. Um, and you can find Larry at Travel Food Guy on Twitter. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, this has been episode 101 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast, and we'll see you next time.